Welcome to the official podcast channel of the Australian Physiotherapy Association, the latest in clinical, academic and health leadership, giving you access to preeminent physiotherapy research from Australia and across the globe. Australia's leading stroke rehabilitation trialist, APA member Julie Bernhardt, recently completed the largest international trial of early mobility-based rehabilitation ever conducted. Featuring over 2,000 patients from five different countries, the trial offered a unique perspective into both the burden of stroke-related disability as well as the rehabilitation interventions considered to encompass best practice. My name's Mark Elkins and I'm the editor of Journal of Physiotherapy and for this podcast I'm joined uh, by Julie Bernhardt who is the lead author on the paper Efficacy and Safety of Very Early Mobilisation Within 24 Hours of Stroke Onset, which is probably better known as the AVERT trial, um, published in The Lancet. So thanks for joining us, Julie. Pleasure. Um, So would you like to start by summarising the design and the key results of the AVERT trial? Yeah, sure. So this was an international, multi-centre, parallel group randomised controlled trial. So people were individually randomised into either... Uh, an intervention that we call very early mobilisation, which was a combination of both starting out of bed activity within 24 hours, uh, as well as um, looking at increasing the amount of out of bed activity and the frequency of it. So it was a, a package of care that we've called VEM, uh, compared to usual care in acute stroke units. So we did the study across uh, five five different um, countries, so New Zealand, uh, Australia, Malaysia, Singapore and the UK, and recruited 2,104 patients in the trial to try and uh, answer the question, uh, if we do start this intervention early, can we improve outcome for patients with stroke at three months? The surprising result from the trial, for many, was that the early intervention resulted in less favourable outcome for patients at three months after stroke. So fewer of them achieved no or little disability, which is of course what we want our stroke patients to have. So that is a really important finding because it's telling us that uh, having this frequent, early, more is better approach, which is what we talk about a lot, really doesn't apply in this early time period after stroke. So there were some sort of theoretical rationales about why it might not be helpful before the trial started. So is it, a, is it really that much of an unexpected finding, do you think? Is it just so difficult to comprehend for people that it, the trial could have come out that way? I think, are you referring to the animal work that's been done previously? Uh, yeah, I was thinking about the, perfu- the cerebral perfusion issues. So what was really important about the study is that there was enormous clinical equipoise. So on the one hand, you had some people who felt that there was indication from some of the preclinical work with animal stroke models that starting exercise early might be harmful. Uh, However, those early studies were then replaced with other studies that suggested just the opposite. There were some observational studies that were indicating that if you raised the head of the bed, cerebral blood flow velocity would change and that might have a bearing on the penumbra in people with ischemic stroke. So that's the area around the infarct core that might be still viable. Uh, 
but none of those studies looked at outcome, so that was very indirect. And then on the other hand, we had um, suggestions from some nicely conducted clinical trials in which indicated that a, a program or a stroke unit model of care that had early rehab with an out-of-bed activity uh, component as a key component resulted in better outcomes. And also, we had phase two trials, a number of small phase two trials, including our own, which indicated that actually it looked like it could be a good thing. So that was the reason we had to do the study. We had really clinical equipoise and we didn't know what to do. And we didn't know what to recommend. And, and just to comment on that, I think one of the things that's been most remarkable is that over the years, um, over the last eight years, for example, uh, early rehab was recommended in one clinical guideline and when I did a review at the end of last year, it's recommended in 22 clinical guidelines out of the 30 we looked at. So people have adopted the intervention before we had the evidence. Mm. And I, I mean, we've had a similar thing, not quite as big a scale as your study, but in respiratory medicine, we've had a recent study published by Greening, which showed very early um, initiation of pulmonary rehab when someone has an, an exacerbation of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is harmful and the pulmonary rehab should be delayed until the person's recovered from the acute exacerbation and that caused a lot of consternation amongst mm. physios because they all felt like the earlier was better and we might stop the deterioration while they're in the middle of the exacerbation but it turned out to be harmful. Of course I think that actually is a really interesting study too because the harm came at tw 12 months after the intervention mm. so you know I think there's still it, it is really interesting to look at how these trials unfold. Yeah I think the the ones with the, the trials with the unexpected results in a way should be seen as the most valuable and should be lauded because if we have trials that confirm what we already thought, well, yes, they confirm it, but they don't necessarily change practice. And even if we hadn't had them, and we should have them, but we might have gone down that pathway anyway, but it's the ones with the unexpected findings that say, well, your guess was wrong, that I think should, you know, should be seen as the most valuable of all. Yeah, I completely agree. And if anything, when I first um, presented these results, uh, the exciting thing for me to see was two really eminent neurologists who came out of the session and said that's the most important finding that we've heard today mm -hmm. because that was unexpected and we now have to really think about it. Yeah. And, I, and I heard that later and went, oh, that's good. Mm. That's good. Yeah, that's a terrific <laughs> response. That's yeah. The other thing that, well, one of many things that impressed me about the trial was the, the follow-up rate. Now, we, in the latest issue of the journal, our, our Journal of Physiotherapy, I was very proud that we had a national survey and they aimed to get 300 responses, which was everyone that was eligible in the country, and they got a 99% follow-up rate. And I thought, wow, how, how fantastic we are. But that's just a cross-sectional questionnaire, really. And you achieved that rate with a longitudinal study in a you know very... Um, severely affected population. How did you how did you do it? Yeah, I, I think we spent a lot of time at the beginning talking about how important it was that we followed up everybody, and that was a message that we took to our investigator group, and they really owned it. All of the investigators owned it. The blinded assessors, the main investigators, and this is a clinician physiotherapy largely led trial. 
and they got that, they really did. The other thing that we did right was we made sure that our funding included face-to-face -face follow up. So we went out and saw those patients. So uh, that makes a big difference. If you ask people to come into a clinic for a follow up, I think you get less, um, less follow up. And we would make the time and go out to see them. And if that wasn't possible, we would do the follow up on the phone. Um, so I think having those things in place makes a difference. And we also spent a lot of time with our consumer rep looking at how we could make that follow up as um, short but meaningful as possible. So we try not to overburden participants. And then the other thing we did well, really well, was before they left the hospital, we didn't just have the contact details of one person, we had the contact details of three others who were part of their family group, if possible, their GP. We had enough contact information that we, if we went to one source and couldn't track them, we'd find them somewhere else. But I'll tell you a funny story as well, that in Malaysia and Singapore, that kind of approach is uh, a little bit different because in, in Malaysia particularly, if you've had a stroke, you move between family groups. So one month you'll be with your son and the next month you'll be with your daughter and the next month you'll be with your aunt. And so that made it really complex for them and they had to work really hard to find people. Uh, and sometimes when you can't find people in Malaysia, they send the police to your house. <laughs> so uh, that would have been pretty scary for the families, but um, they did really well. But deeply challenging in some different locations. Mm. Mm. And it shows how crucial your approach of getting multiple contact methods was there because you would have ended up with a massive Absolutely. Um, we had, in your yeah. Data. And we had some really heroic efforts. So uh, full credit to the blinded assessors. Yeah, oh, that's great. I note in the paper that the control group gradually started their rehab earlier as the trial progressed. Did did you consider trying to statistically address that forward creep over the time of onset of rehab in the control group during the study? Not during the conduct of the study, of course. We tracked it. We knew it was happening. Uh, we reported to our data monitoring committee uh, our intervention, both in usual care, what was happening in usual care, and in, uh, in the intervention group because we had an independent monitor and that was their job to prepare those and send them to the data monitoring committee. So they would tell us that there was some shift happening so we knew that was happening and we tried to talk to the sites and change that behaviour. But of course you can't actually influence usual care very easily because it is their usual care and uh, even when you point out that they're shifting they can't wind it back, it's hard. In terms of the statistical approach, we pre-planned all of our analyses before the trial completed. So we have that published in a statistical analysis plan. And one of the things we did analyse was whether it did shift, so we can tell you it did. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe down the track, when we've gone past all of the formal analyses that we said we would do, it might be something that we can explore if we can adjust for that and does it make a difference. Mm -hmm. I think this has occurred in other trials. I think Carol Hodgson's FARLAP trial, they started to, the, the staff in the intensive care unit started to see how well the experimental group was doing and wanted to introduce it. And I've just had one of my PhD students who was looking at 
giving speaking valves to ventilated patients in intensive care early and all the intensivists suddenly wanted speaking valves for everybody which wasn't usual care and so we had to really read them the riot act and explain that this was just going to completely nobble the trial and it made me wonder what we should whether maybe we should be more proactive at the start of this before the study starts not just to trial staff but to non-trial staff who are also looking after the patients and explain to them, given in service and explain to them the importance of not modifying usual care while the study's on. I don't know if there's anything else we can do, but I, we didn't do that, but I think maybe next time that mm. would be. We did do that. Um, we spent a lot of time talking to the sites, explaining about research methodology and how uh, these kinds of things can kill studies. We put a lot of things in place to try and make the intervention as discreet as possible, which is not simple. And the other thing we did is we uh, had the, the intervention therapists and nurses, uh, they never talked about the intervention. So the other staff would say, so what are you doing? And they'd say, I can't tell you, it's secret avert business, <laughs> which actually created some interesting um, conflicts on some of the hospital wards because they didn't like not knowing what the intervention was. Um, but despite those things that we try and put in as protections, inevitably in these studies you can see that um, it's possible to, to look and go, oh, that looks good. And in our trial we can't tell if that creep was related to the intervention being present itself or related to that broader issue that there's been creep and introduction of early rehab into guidelines uh, without evidence for years. So it's really hard to know. In terms of, in terms of what else can we do, um, I think there's other issues that I've been thinking about, which is that often we have usual care and then we have our intervention. And in our case, we actually did the intervention on top of usual care. So when you get creep, you also get higher doses in the intervention than what you'd originally planned. And I think that we saw that in this study. Mm -hmm. And I think we went over a threshold into a, a state that is harmful, right. not what you should be doing. Right. So it is really interesting how we try and control for that. We, and as I said to you before, we gave people feedback about their usual care. We said, this is what you were doing at the beginning and this is what you're doing now. And that's really different to what you were doing in the beginning. And can we wind that back? Mm. And sometimes they could and sometimes they couldn't. I'm not sure what the answer is, but I do think we need to think about it really seriously. The other answer, of course, is don't take eight years to do a trial because it gives you a really long time yeah. <laughs> to get change. Um, and the answer to that is, if you're going to do a big study, you've really got to know that it's going to be, you need many, many sites. We didn't really know that. We'd need 56 sites. We thought we'd get it done with 12. Uh, so you know with experience you need that many and you get it set up with all the sites before you start, if you can, and you, and you get it done as quickly as you can. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the other answer um, that we need to think about, which of course means you need really good trial networks. Yeah. And we didn't have one to begin with. We had to build it from scratch. Mm. And so a lot of your lead time get 
get sites on board, but just because the first few are ready, don't start and try and start everyone more at a similar time. Well, so. you can start, you know, one or two who you know are, yeah. are really on board and really get this, because yeah. they do. There's mm -hmm. some that are fantastic and they don't change their gear all through. They know that's what you have to do. Um, but you've got to line your ducks up mm. uh, instead of it sort of rolling out, which is what we ended up having to do. Another thing I noticed was that the consent form invited participants into, the, into a trial testing different types of rehabilitation and that was kind of the phrase that was used, but not really giving specific information about the two approaches. And I personally think addressing the consent form in that way goes a long way to achieving what perfect blinding would achieve, what we're trying to achieve with, with blinding. And I think this suggests many enlightened ethics committees. I'm not sure that all ethics committees would immediately agree to that, but I am impressed that they did. So I'm wondering if that was you or that was, that was them, and did you push them to understand that this was a really valuable thing to have in the research, which was informed consent, but not over-informed to totally um, destroy any potential for them not being that aware of which which group they were in, what might be expected of them. Yeah, uh, we think this is critical. It was, it's so hard to um, blind even assessors if the participants know what group they're in. They can inadvertently say all kinds of things about what they're doing uh, that informs an assessor uh, that about what group they might be in. So to, to help that reduce that bias. We really felt like we had to give people information, enough information that would tell them enough about the study to decide if they wanted to join and we had so few people who declined. You know, Out of a trial um, we had 20,000 people that we screened and 460 odd said no. That's really low. It's actually a really low rate of refusal across a study like this where we asked them to commit to a whole year a follow-up from the day of stroke. So that was that's very low. So they were happy to participate in a study where they didn't really know what they were going to be doing. Mm. They just knew it was two different things. And it, we really didn't have assessors. We used to check in with our assessors all the time. Do you have people asking what group they're in? Nah, they just don't, they didn't need to know. They, they never asked. So I, I think we really should um, use this um, if we can. In terms of your question around the ethics committees, we had an enlightened ethics committee at the beginning. We explained to them that in uh, rehab trials it's hard to blind. So uh, to really reduce that risk of un unblinding and reduce that bias, we have to do this. And they said, yep, we get that. And then once we'd, and we, once we got to about 12 sites where that had gone through, we did encounter some cranky ones, but because of the, the fact that so many others had already said yes, we managed to just keep working it through. Mm. And yeah, every single site said yes. Yeah, no, I just think that's terrific. If you can't blind, then just make them as visually impaired as you can and cover as, cover as many avenues for bias. And I just think that's brilliant. Mm. I think the whole thing is brilliant because of the scale of it, and I just stagger at the idea of 56 sides, I just think that's amazing. So I give you massive congratulations about that. And I obviously, for such a huge enterprise, 
there'll be more papers to come out of it. Will, will you be covering the range of interventions that were used across the sites? Was there much vari variation and will that be something that's a feature of subsequent publications? Mm. Or yes. are you not allowed to talk about that? Oh, no. <laughs> I think we will. There's a lot of things that, of course, will be really interesting to look at further down the track. And um, uh, we'll certainly be looking at inter-regional differences because the patients are, are different. Um, people who have a stroke in Asia are different to people who have a stroke in Australia. And, uh, and that in itself is actually really quite fascinating. Uh, what we also have sitting at the back of this, apart from this enormous clinical data set, is we actually have a health economic evaluation, which is a very comprehensive cost questionnaire. So we have information about how much rehab you had, whether you needed home services, whether you needed a maid if you are in Singapore or Malaysia, um, whether you went to the GP. Uh, we've got amazing information about whether you went back to work. So there's a... a enormous scope to talk about how care is different in these different countries mm. and even in different sites. So yeah, I think we'd be really keen to explore that. Um, but I think getting back to your first point, and thank you for the praise, but I always like to say, and I spend my first two minutes or three minutes of my talk praising the collaboration, because um, although you've got to have someone who's behind there, who's come up with the idea, you cannot do this work without having a really strong, committed collaboration. And we had 285 physios involved in this trial, and uh, they were the backbone of much of the, um, much of the study, as well as many other people involved. So I have really just have to praise them for their commitment. It's been really fantastic. Mm. That's wonderful. Um, I have to now confess that I feel like a bit of a fraud because I'm not a uh, physio with a neuro background and so I'm feeling like I may have overlooked important avenues to pursue in the interview. Is there anything that you feel we haven't covered that you'd like to mention before we finish the interview and uh, that, we, that we haven't covered? I think that it's a, it's a great thing to uh, complete this study. I have said to people it's actually not finished. We've still got 32 patients to follow up to 12 months. It would be very interesting to see how many of those we follow up, but it's looking very, very good as well. And also people are very interested in whether or not we might find something different at 12 months than what we do at three months. I'm not holding my breath about that, but if we did, it would be pretty intriguing. Yeah. So I, I think there's a lot more to unpack. I'm, I'm sort of describing it as a Russian doll. So we've only really got the first Russian doll that's come out in the Lancet paper. And I'm just starting to take the lid off that and go down to the next level. Um, but I think I'll be doing this for many years. Yeah. <laughs> and I keep inviting people to come <laughs> and just look at the data. I said to someone the other day, we've got 85,000 therapy records. Would you like to come and help me? <laughs> <laughs> and they just laugh. <laughs> I bet they did. If you wanted to wrap up a clinical message, a message for clinicians out of the um, study results, what would you... Is there a way you can maybe put that in a nutshell? Yeah, I think it's really important that physiotherapists understand that what this study shows is that what they do acutely with people with stroke makes a difference. It has an impact. And that's a really great message. What we now need to do is work out 
what is the right intervention at the right time for the right people. But there's no doubt that it makes a difference. To find out more, visit physiotherapy.asn.au.